I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Imagine if Donald Trump had gotten away with it. Imagine that the pressure campaign on the Ukrainian government that Trump and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had cooked up had never come to light and continued unabated. Imagine that Ukrainian President Zelensky, desperate for his withheld military aid, had announced investigations into Joe Biden and his son Hunter, leading to the former vice president's defeat. And Trump gets reelected. Imagine if our president owed his victory to a foreign power and we never found out. So asks former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal in his provocative new book, Impeach, the Case Against Donald Trump. It's an instant bestseller and is now being cited by all sides in the impeachment debate, even becoming the subject of controversy during this week's House Judiciary Committee hearing. But how airtight is the case Katyal lays out? We'll explore that very question with Katyal himself, and we'll hear from a Washington lawyer who has become one of the president's most aggressive defenders on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Daniel Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, it is now official. Speaker Pelosi has directed the uh, chairs of the relevant committees to draft articles of impeachment. The House Intelligence Committee counsels will be presenting their case for impeachment to the Judiciary Committee. We've just learned on Monday, which is kind of interesting because that's the day the Justice Department Inspector General report is supposed to be released, a report that Democrats have been nervous about and Republicans have been excited about because they expect it to identify uh, multiple faults uh, by the FBI in its pursuit of a member of Trump's campaign. But it is clear the battle lines have been drawn and this thing is happening. What, you think that was intentional, that they had (laughs) scheduled a hearing for the same day that the IG report was going to come out? Uh, We should say, by the way, that at least a lot of the stories that have come out so far journalists who have been told what's in the report does not make it look like it's the kind of bombshell, you know, full of bombshells are going to undercut the Russia investigation in the way I think Republicans are hoping for. But there will be damaging information there about the FBI's conduct in particular. Yes. And its use of the Steele dossier in its presentation to the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So a lot we'll have to chew over next week on Skullduggery. But we've got a lot to do this week because we basically have two very highly polished lawyers from Washington who are going to be giving dueling views on uh, the the impeachment of Trump. Let me just say that Jerry Nadler and the House uh, Judiciary Committee had their own panel of constitutional scholars, and on skullduggery, uh, we have our own... uh, dynamic uh, duo of constitutional scholars uh, for our skullduggery audience. Well, let's call this the skullduggery hearing on impeachment, and we'll get right to it. We now have with us our first constitutional scholar of the show, Neil Katyal, a renowned Washington litigator, former acting solicitor general, ubiquitous TV commentator. Preparing now for his 40th Supreme Court oral argument. 
Yep, it's a death penalty case. I'll argue in a couple days. Well, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks. I had so much fun the first time. So uh, when you invited me back, I was jumped on well, it. We're we a lot are. meaner the second yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I should point out that I was at Neil's book party, which was quite, quite the Washington event at Juliana Glover's house, where he was introduced by another former Skullduggery guest, George Conway. Was, Kel- the- was Kellyanne there? Kellyanne was not there. Neil, your book, Impeach, the Case Against Donald Trump getting a lot of attention. You argue that basically the Congress has no choice but to impeach Donald Trump. And if it does not, you write, we might lose our democracy altogether. Pretty strong words. Explain why. Yeah. So, I mean, I began the book by thinking about, well, why is impeachment in the Constitution? And at the founding at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, many folks didn't actually want to have it in. They thought that the president was subject to re-election campaigns. And indeed, at that point, there wasn't a constitutional amendment for two terms. So, you know, it could have many re-election campaigns. And so like thought founders like Elbridge Gary said, well, you know, just have re-election as the check. And others like Madison and Hamilton said, well, no, what about if you have a president who is corrupted by foreign influence, who is getting help from foreign governments? What if you have a president who tries to cheat in the election campaign? That's their paradigmatic instance of what an impeachable offense was for Madison and Hamilton. Sound sound familiar? Exactly. And that's what leads even Elbridge Gary to conclude, yeah, you know what? We do need to have impeachment in the Constitution. And they put it in with a very high standard, high crimes and misdemeanors, because they didn't want it to be for ordinary politics. And as we think about the allegations against President Trump, which uh, started, of course, with that whistleblower report and continued up until right now, the central thing that these allegations are about is an idea that the president has put his personal interests over those of the American people. He's tried to cheat in the 2020 election and with the help of a foreign government. And if we allow that conduct to go unpunished, if we think about it as something that we should just get over, then yes, uh, Michael, I do think that that is the end of our democracy as we know it. And I'll just say this one last thing, um, which is, you know, when I teach my law students on day one, I say, everyone's going to come in with biases. And the best way to try and test your assumptions is to flip the identity of the party. So if you're more of a corporate friendly person, pretend you're representing the plaintiff and vice versa. And here, similarly, I think the best way And this goes back to like the rule of law, justice being blind, you know, the literally lady justice having a blindfold. The whole idea is to say, well, imagine if it wasn't Trump who did this. Imagine if it were President Obama or if you want to fast forward, imagine it's President Warren or President Bernie Sanders who did this, who tried to cheat in the next election with the help of a foreign government. Would you just say get over it? I think the answer to that has to be no. That's what everything in our democracy, I think, teaches us. You lay out what you believe the articles of impeachment should be, starting with a request to um, Zelensky for interference in our election. We'll get to that. But I want to get your second proposed article is bribery, which is, of course, the uh, word in the Constitution as one of the grounds for impeachment. But I think a lot of people have a little trouble understanding this in the bribery context. What's the bribe here? Who is bribing who based on the evidence we have in this? Okay, so first of all, I think it's it's important to understand the phrase in the Constitution, I use shorthand to say high crimes and misdemeanors, but it's actually treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And the founders, I think, put bribery in because they were using it as an exemplar of a circumstance in which someone is taking their personal interests and selling out effectively their government role in order to advance them personally. So that's the idea. Indeed, bribery wasn't actually a crime at the time of the founding. But it so is it doesn't now. need to be a crime. But it, but it is, is now, now, and it's defined it in is the defined. federal statute. It is right. defined. And the, that definition, I think, is helpful, You know, but again, not determinative, because when you talk about impeachment, you're not talking about actually criminal activity. You're talking about offenses against the public, but they don't have to be criminal. So the bribe here is really the president. It's a solicitor of a bribe, to put it in technical criminal law terms, it's basically the president saying, look, I will give you this 
goodie or really two different goodies, almost $400 million, million in aid that the Congress had already appropriated for this purpose and a White House meeting. In exchange, you've got to give me something that I really value. And that thing that I really value is the announcement, not the actual fact, but the announcement that you're investigating. But wait a second. That was Sondland's interpretation of what he believed the president wanted. The words of the president in the transcript do not say that he just wants an announcement. Well, the whether or not an announcement or not, the words in the transcript say, I need a favor from you, though. And that favor is the investigation of his chief political rival. So, you know, nothing turns in my view on whether or not it's simply an announcement or an investigation. Either way, you're getting something of value, a thing of value, and you're offering effectively this big goodie or two sets of goodies in exchange for it. So that puts it squarely within both the criminal definition of what bribery is, and more generally, the concept that our founders had in mind, which is you have a president who's saying and doing things not because of the nation's interest, but because it advances him personally. But but for impeachment, you argue in the book that you don't even need to get there. You don't need to get to the quid pro quo, the exactly. something for something. That's Article 2 in the draft the articles that I've put out in the book. But Article 1 is just a straight abuse of power, just going and asking for help from a foreign government, regardless of what they give in response, uh, you know, to in, uh, help in helping in a foreign election, excuse me, in a, in a presidential election, that's deeply, deeply wrong. I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with the president seeking help from foreign governments about things that matter to the American people. In the book I talk about, for example, we have intelligence sharing arrangements with other countries. So if we say to Great Britain, hey, we'll give you information on bad guys, you give us information on bad guys, absolutely no problem with that. But the problem here is that this was not, and you know, try as the president's defenders have tried, this is not a legitimate government investigation. If it were a legitimate investigation, I'm sorry, but you don't put Rudy Giuliani, the president's private lawyer, in charge of that. Okay, but let me ask you this. I, I know your argument is that as a constitutional matter, you don't need the quid pro quo. You don't need to prove that military assistance was held back until Zelensky ordered these the announcement although, of these Although under the bribery statute, you okay, would. But, but, you would have to show a nexus and an agreement to— Yeah, but you don't Zelensky's need that for impeachment. Part, you don't need to prove bribery is a criminal trying, matter. Well— but here's my. But this is a political process, and there is a reason that in these uh, public hearings, there's been a tremendous amount of focus on this question of whether the military assistance was conditioned on these investigations. In your book, I don't see you spending a lot of time like making the case that that actually happened. I, I don't see that called out. The military assistance in particular. But can you make the argument here that there is a, if not an ironclad a very strong case that that is exactly what happened. That was part of the quid quo. quo Absolutely. Quo. And the book does exactly that. It refers to that expert witness, Mike Mulvaney, the president's chief of staff, acting chief of staff, who said exactly that, that there was a quid pro quo and then told us to get over it. And no, I don't think we should get over it. I entirely agree with you, Michael, that the impeachment is a hybrid animal. Uh, or Danny, I, th I think we both said it. Impeachment is a hybrid animal. It's both political and legal. And, you know, neither one alone is sufficient. And here, you know, I do think it's really telling that right when the Ukraine allegations broke, even Lindsey Graham said, well, if there's a quid pro quo, then I'm going to have to look into it. But otherwise, I don't have to. I mean, in the book, I say, no, I think you do either way, because either way, it's a grave offense against the American public to cheat on the next election. Um, but either way, I do think, yeah, and, you know, I defer to the president's chief of staff who admitted there was a quid pro quo. So look, the book is very well argued, but I have to say at certain key junctures, you do misstate the evidence. And I'll give you an example. You talk about the transcript of the phone call. And you said President Trump didn't spend even a single moment discussing U.S. national interests or Ukraine's efforts to contain Russia. The entirety of the call focused on President Trump's past and present political opponents. Now, that's not true, because before he ever gets to his request about 2016 interference or the Bidens, he's talking about European countries and 
they're not paying their fair share. And he specifies Germany as an example. He specifies, he says, all they do is talk, and I think it's something that you should really ask them about. Now, that's before he even gets to the Bidens. That's in the transcript. And you said the entirety is all about his rivals. There, no, no, no. There's a big difference between... But that's in the transcript. And I'm not disagreeing with that. Of course, that's in the transcript. There's stuff like that. That's not about... What we said, what we said in the book wasn't in there. So what we said was that, you know, if you care about fair sharing and cost arrangements, you know, that's a different rationale. Indeed, I think even the president has given up on on that rationale because I don't think it panned out because the facts didn't show it. Um, but, you know, the fact that that's in the transcript doesn't say anything about whether or not the president was talking about legitimate national security concerns. That's what I said wasn't in there. And that's what isn't in there. Instead, it's a preoccupation and a focus on Biden, Biden, Biden. I mean, the, the significance of the references to European contributions is that when you get to the testimony of Mark Sandy, the OMB official, which wasn't he wasn't called as a witness. He, the, the, the committee put it out on a Saturday when it wasn't getting a lot of attention. He pressed for an explanation for why the military aid was withheld. And his testimony, which is really the only testimony that speaks to why the military assistance was held, when he finally gets an answer from Mike Duffy, who's the political official at OMB, he says it's because of the president's concerns about European countries not paying enough of their fair share to for Ukraine. And even Trump that's, is that's the, the testimony. That's a piece of testimony. Even Trump's not advancing that. And I think he's not advancing it because I think the facts don't show it. I, I don't doubt that, you know, that the president's folks, once they got caught, have been scrambling to come up with whatever rationale they can. But the facts are the facts. And, you know, the transcript alone is you have the president of Ukraine saying, I really need this military assistance, this javelins, and the president saying, but wait, I need a favor from you, though. And that favor is the investigation into the Bidens, although the transcript, I think, has been edited out to not say Burisma, unlike Colonel Vindman's testimony, because he listened to the call. So it's not a full and accurate transcript, but it is incredibly damning. And that is all you need, I think, to prove impeachment. And I think if the shoe were on the other foot, if it were a President Obama who did this and said, oh, cost sharing or tried to invent that rationale and had some OMB official, you know, say something like that, I think the Republicans would be lining up to, to throw him out of office as well they should. So another one of your impeachment articles would be obstruction and, and the cover up. Right. And when uh, the White House officials took the call summary and put it in a on a much more secure server. Now, I see that that may be an abuse of the classification laws, but what's the evidence that that is obstruction of justice? Because, you know, these call summaries have been leaked in the past. They are, I think, classified at the secret level. A White House, I think, is justified in wanting to protect those kinds of summaries to, you know, go to reporters. So what's the case that this is a, a you know, a Watergate-style cover-up? Right. So again, I don't think that the book argues that it's just the computer... Uh, um, the, the the moving of the computer uh, information. But I do think that's pretty significant because having served twice in the government, I think access to information is crucial in order for good decision making. And I'm not aware of any circumstance in which you would move transcripts like this to a very highly classified server, which doesn't isn't even designed for that highly classified information. But for me, are, you know, there are three articles that I lay out in the book for impeachment. Article one is this abuse of power with, you know, seeking the assistance of a foreign government to cheat. Article two is bribery, as we've talked about. And then article three is obstruction of justice. And part of it's the computer, but part of it is also all the things we've been seeing this president do, which are literally unprecedented. Even Nixon didn't do this, as I wrote, you know, tomorrow in a piece in the New York Times last week um, with, with more detail. But basically, the president has said every executive branch employee, every single one, every executive branch email, every executive branch document and phone record, none of it can be turned over to the Congress because he thinks, in his view, the impeachment investigation is illegitimate. You isn't, know, isn't it possible that that's just a separation of powers argument and, and you know, you just litigate this in the courts. And then once the courts say you have to turn it over, make the judgment after there's a 
a uh, oh no, it can't be an answer when you have a grave constitutional wrong to say, oh, just go to court and get it done. I mean, for one thing, after the Supreme Court's decision in Nixon versus United States a few years ago, which said the federal courts have no business doing anything in impeachment, it's not clear that you even have that route. But even if you do, the underlying question is: Is the president acting? Uh, in, in in compliance with his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, including separation of powers. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to explain why impeachment is so central. They and Our founders had a kind of grand compromise in which they said, we really want a strong president. You know, Hamilton talks in the Federalist Papers about an executive who has both secrecy and dispatch advantages, that he can move quickly. And that makes a lot of sense in a world when sometimes it's hard for Congress to get them to agree on anything. So So you want a strong president, but at the same time, because that president is so strong, you want to make sure that there's a check in case he starts abusing his powers against the American people. That's where impeachment comes in. And it's definitely no answer to say, oh, you could go to court and win. I think the Democrats, should they go to court, um, will win these cases about trying to get all of this information. So why not go to court where you'd be on a lot stronger footing uh, arguing that the president is obstructing if you have a court order saying he must turn it over? Because I don't think, you know, I think obstruction of justice is a broader concept and you don't need a court to tell you that when a president says, I'm going to self-declare the entire impeachment investigation illegitimate, you don't need a court order to say how wrong that is. Trump is hardly the first uh, president to invoke privileged claims in order That's to not avoid what I said. testifying. That's not what I said. I said he's the one who's invoked it in an unprecedented way. No president has ever done it. Nixon at one point said two of the witnesses couldn't go and testify in the impeachment proceedings and tried to gag them. And even he relented because the Senate said, "Okay, if you do that, we'll start jailing executive branch employees. Uh, And so March 12th, 1973, he backs down. We've literally not had a president who's done this. And no, I don't think we need a, a court order to tell us what our Constitution says. We should know it. You rest a lot on the solicitation of foreign assistance as being the act by the president that is most concerning. And you write, a Trump administration official, Ellen Weintraub, who runs the Federal Election Commission, actually condemned President Trump's statements. This is after he solicited foreign help, I think, from China. And you quote her, let me make something 100% clear to the American public or anyone running for public office. It is illegal to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with a U.S. election. Couple things. First of all, she's not a Trump administration official. She's a Democrat who serves on an independent regulatory commission. She doesn't report to the White House. She doesn't report to anybody in the president's orbit, and she's a frequent critic. But take those words. It is illegal to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign national. Isn't that exactly what the Clinton campaign did? It solicited and received assistance from a foreign national, a former British spy, who in turn received information from former Russian government officials that was helpful to the Clinton campaign in their election. So should the Clinton campaign be criminally prosecuted by the Justice Department? One of the great joys of my life is that I stay entirely away from the Steele dossier, because, uh, which is what you're referring to, because right. I think everyone who talks about it. I can't make heads or tails of it or understand it. So I'm not right. familiar but, with those but facts. But we know the, the I basic don't think those details. Facts are actually, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that those what, facts that the are the Clinton campaign, it's been but publicly confirmed campaign, that they paid for the Steele dossier from a foreign national who was getting information from former Russian government officials. So if that's the case, shouldn't at least the Justice Department investigate them for violating the laws you articulate here in your well, book? Well, I don't know. I mean, again, I don't know enough about that, that situation, but I do think that the whole idea i mean you can sometimes get services if you're a comp- if you're a camp presidential campaign from some foreign enterprise you just can't get them gifted to you or something like that so again i don't know anything about this um, but i can tell you that here we're not talking about a presidential campaign which was the allegation of the president against the President Trump in 2016, when he was a private citizen running for office, we are talking about, and this is why I think this is so different than Mueller, we are talking about the president as commander in chief, flexing his commander in chief powers and doing so to benefit himself, not the American people. That's the ultimate problem. Neil, you you also um, write about another aspect 
of Trump's conduct or kind of an implication of his conduct, which I thought was interesting and hasn't gotten a lot of attention, which is that in that call to Zelensky, he opened him, himself up to blackmail. Yeah. Um, ex- explain that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, our intelligence services, you know, I was national security advisor at the Justice Department for a while. They're always very concerned with dealings with foreign nationals because sometimes they can, you know, learn something that they can use as blackmail against you. And this has been used by intelligence services, you know, for our whole lifetimes in various ways. Here, what the president did was he went and called the Ukrainian government and asked for his favor and for help in his 2020 election campaign. Now, the the folks who knew about it were obviously him and the Ukrainians on the other side. When you do something like that, when you offer up to a foreign government information that you are involved in both a crime and impeachable activities, boy, you weaken yourself massively vis-a-vis that other government. Because whether that other government takes a quid pro quo or doesn't take a quid pro quo, they now have something massively over you. So the Ukrainians, for ever since the president did this in his July 25th phone call, have had this massive thing. And yes, the whistleblower has now blown it out into the open. But had he not, or she, the whistleblower, not done that, the Ukrainians would have be on, could have done any number of things and said, you know, Mr. President, we don't just want $400 million in aid, we want $2 billion in aid or else. And that would put the president, of course, in a terrible position and the American people in a terrible position. And so we are so lucky from a national security perspective that this whistleblower came forward so that the president couldn't be blackmailed. I do note that probably the strongest argument against your position here is that as we're on the eve of an election year and the country is this divided, shouldn't we just let the voters decide? Yeah, I don't think that there is a clause in the impeachment part of our Constitution which says, oh, if you're close to an election, it doesn't matter or that the president Not should get a Not that it doesn't matter, pass. but when you have a divided country, which we clearly do, listen, you've heard all the quotes from in the past, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, Jerry, Jerry Nadler, talking about the dangers of a partisan impeachment when there is not a national consensus to do it. And that's precisely the situation right now. Right. So so two things. Number one is we're only two months into this right now. We're at the beginning chapters of the impeachment inquiry. So I don't know, you know, where popular opinion goes and whether we'll be as divided. But I do think this, which is the idea that we should wait for the election, that that's somehow going to be our savior makes no sense. This is the election that the president was trying to cheat in, the 2020 election. This is the election that he said even after he got caught, he'd do it again. He'd do it with China. It'd be one thing if he expressed contrition. But this is kind of like if I get caught cheating in a game of Monopoly with you, I don't think the answer to that is for me to say, oh, let's just play another game of Monopoly and see who wins. That's the president's argument. And that's what I try and demolish in the book. And you're right. We can't decide President Trump's fate with the 2020 election because there's no guarantee he won't try again to use the powers vested in him to rig it. What you're basically saying there is that if the president is not removed from office, and look, the odds are he's not going to be, you'd have to flip 20 Republican senators and there's absolutely no sign of that, then we can't trust the outcome of the 2020 election. You're making the case to challenge President Trump's re-election if that's what happens. I am. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, look, this is a. You said president. we can't trust the outcome. And I think if the if you don't remove this president, he has said he will do it again. And uh, yeah, I think we have to worry about exactly that. That's the whole point. You can't just let this conduct go unpunished. And again, I think if the parties were reversed, if this were President Obama who did this or, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren or something, you would have a massive number of people. And I sure hope every Democrat, too, saying, no, this person has to go. That is completely unacceptable in our democracy. And by the way, I don't think that we should just say, oh, well, there are 20 Republican senators who haven't come forward yet. I mean, that's the standard 
uh, the way that the Democrats have been thinking for so long and been so afraid to actually call the Republicans out. And I think that, you know, as the evidence is developed, as the House moves toward an impeachment vote, and then the information is presented in the Senate, I don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, these are going to be some of the most solemn proceedings these folks have ever engaged in, probably the most solemn proceedings. And, um, you know, every one of those hundred people came to Washington to make the country a better place. They didn't come to make money. There's a lot easier ways to make money. And I think when the evidence is when the evidence is listened to, and that's what I tried to lay out in the book, there's only one choice, which is to remove this guy from office. One final question, uh, uh, referencing your previous observation that as a law professor, you ask your students to argue the case that they don't believe in to argue the other side. So, okay, Professor Katyal, please argue why the president should not be impeached. I think it's really hard. The president has had a whole bunch of shifting rationales, like the ones you were talking about, about yeah, 04 you're, you're his lawyer for the purpose of this exercise. Honestly, I don't know what to say. And I'm, you know, I think I'm a pretty good lawyer and can come up with a lot. But this is a president who has acted beyond all bounds. And even if you think for whatever reason what he was doing in Ukraine wasn't enough, that we should get over it, we can't get over the president's conduct in how he's treated the impeachment investigation, a complete 100% unilateral stonewalling of any witness, any document of the executive branch. That totally undoes our separation of powers in our constitutional system. And that, again, it's not again about President Trump. It's about any president would then have the power to do that and to stymie and destroy an impeachment investigation. That's just not our system. Okay, I I've got a last question. Just looking ahead a second, because you obviously have spent a lot of time studying past impeachments. I think that there is no doubt that there is going to be a, a Senate trial. How does that unfold? What are the standards for proof? Uh, what role does, this, does the Supreme Court justice play? Can McConnell change the Senate rules or can the Republicans change the Senate rules so they just do this in a day? I mean, how does it play out? All right. Well, I'll take a couple of those. So um, first of all, in terms of timing, we heard recently Professor Jonathan Turley testify in Congress that this was an unprecedented, speedy move to impeachment, and therefore it should be slowed down. I think that argument is going pretty much nowhere. Uh, I think he was absolutely wrong. I mean, Johnson was impeached within three days after his action. And the no, Clinton, they, were tr they were trying to impeach him for well over yeah, a but, year. No, but the articles in which you, I mean, the Republicans yeah. say that they've been trying to impeach Trump since for well over a year, too. So I don't I don't think that point make matters whatsoever. But even like the Clinton impeachment, it was 75 days between uh, the start in, uh, in the House and then the impeachment proceedings. And we're at day 72 right now. So, you know, it was surprising that Turley, who after all worked on that impeachment, didn't recognize that. But I think that this will move pretty quickly in the House. Uh, I think it'll uh, then move to a full trial in the Senate. The Senate rules require that full trial. I think it's very hard for McConnell to change those rules. They're the rules that have been, been around since the Andrew Johnson Johnson impeachment in the 1860s. So I think we are going to see a full trial, and those rules are pretty onerous. They require the senators to sit there all day, every day, for six days a week. Now, you asked about the role of the Chief Justice. I do think this is interesting. Chief Justice Roberts is so much of an institutionalist. Um, I've had the privilege of arguing uh, 39 cases before him, and I think he'll conduct the proceedings with dignity and fairness to all involved. Um, and maybe I think his guiding light, he had clerked himself for Chief Justice Rehnquist. He was his law clerk and has a lot of respect for him. Um, and Rehnquist, when he presided over the Clinton impeachment, and Michael, I'm sure you'll remember, he came in with those silly ro stripes <laughs> yeah. on his robes. Should we from expect from Roberts to come in with <laughs> the no, robes? No. 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 With think? robes, yes, no stripes, though. No um, stripes. And, uh, but, uh, but I do expect one big thing to be the same, which is the chief justice in the Clinton impeachment did very little. Indeed, so much so at the end of it, he said, I did very little and I did it well. Um, and I <laughs> that was Rehnquist. Yeah, the, yeah. the chief justice Rehnquist. And I suspect Chief Justice Roberts will try and emulate that to the extent he can. But and ultimately, 
they don't really have any choice. They don't have that much power, right? I mean, you know, the chief justice can rule on some procedural matter or whether to allow evidence in or or a witness, but that can be overruled by the Senate. I mean, it has to be put to, all those decisions are put to votes, aren't they? Exactly. So the chief justice can make a ruling, but 51 senators can disagree. I don't think uh, that 51 senators are going to disagree with Chief Justice so, Roberts on so any ruling it. as a practical matter. I just think that would be suicide. We're talking about, you know, um, one of the great justices to have served our nation. Here's the scenario. The um, House Democratic managers called John Bolton as a witness for a Senate trial. Who rules as to whether or not he has to testify? Yeah, I don't think that's hypothetical at all. I think it could very well happen. Um, and that may be one reason the Democrats haven't tried to, as uh, Danny was saying, go to court, you know, uh, to try and subpoena Bolton. So the Democrats will have some subpoena powers as part of the rules in the Senate trial. They will then impede, they could then call subpoena someone like Bolton. And uh, the Republicans could object and try and quash that subpoena, and that would be ruled on by Chief Justice Roberts. Right, that, can't, that doesn't get litigate, litigated in the federal courts. No, as right? I was saying, That's there's beyond... this, exactly. There's this case called Nixon versus United States, which was about a Judge, a Judge Nixon. Nixon yeah. Not you know he had the unfortunate distinction of having the name Nixon and the unfortunate <laughs> distinction <laughs> not, of being impeached. Not, not a but, good one. If exactly. You're yeah. Impeachment. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. But, but you know, God has a sense of humor, I guess. And um, in Nixon, uh, Judge. Nixon tried to argue to the Supreme Court, hey, federal courts should stop this unfair impeachment. It went nowhere. Well, Neil Kachel, thanks for joining us. I should say the book again is Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. It's probably the best one-stop guide for the impeachment process. So thanks for joining us yeah, again on Skullduggery. Really fantastic book. And I think Thank you should you. consider this your uh, your moot court before your uh, death penalty argument <laughs> going up against Justice Isikoff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and, you. And I'm sure he's faced yeah. much tougher than me. Right? I think so. <laughs> it's really fun. Thank All you, right, thanks, thanks a lot, Neil. We now have with us uh, David Rifkin, renowned uh, Washington appellate lawyer, frequent commentator, and uh, op-ed contributor to the Wall Street Journal. David, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. Great title. Well, we've uh, we've gotten a little traction on it, but um, let's talk about impeachment, which you have been writing about, commenting about. Um, I have a couple of your recent op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal. The, this impeachment subverts the Constitution is one. Schiff's, quote, obstruction theory is another. You heard the testimony this week from the constitutional law experts arguing why this is a compelling case for impeaching a president. Tell us why you disagree. I disagree for uh, two fundamental reasons. First of all, the easiest one, obstruction. The notion that the president who is willing to test the vigor of his constitutional prerogatives, namely so-called immediate advisor privilege and national security privilege, which guard against forced disclosure to Congress, that the fact that he's invoking those privileges and having them tested in the court of law can be considered obstruction is frankly absurd. The impeachment process does not vitiate separation of powers. The president never said that he would not comply with a definitive adjudication of this issue. He just wished to have it tested. What can be more American than that? So the notion that this is obstruction is just is silly. I hope I'm not going to spend time on it. If the Supreme Court, if it got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ordered the president to turn over documents or to allow witnesses to testify and he didn't, then it's obstruction, but not until then. Of course. But the very fact that the president, or I should say people like Kupperman, like Mulvaney, like Bolton, are actually the ones who are the moving party, not to get technical, the plaintiffs, suggest that they're willing to test it. They're not even waiting for the House to try and enforce those uh, those subpoenas. And yes, it would take time. I know that a lot of folks in the media were saying delays, 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 but that's called the rule of law. So that, let's take that off the table. All right, let's talk about the president's core conduct here and right. starting with the transcript itself. Do you really think it was okay for the president to ask the president of Ukraine to announce uh, investigations of Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden? That was, in your view, acceptable from the president of the United States? 
Mike, with respect, the question is not whether it's acceptable. The question whether or not it's a high crime and misdemeanor. No, we well, can get well, to that, well, but let's well, start we with ask whether... We questions here. Yeah. <laughs> was it okay for the president to make that request of a foreign leader? Uh, I would not have phrased this in the same syntax. <laughs> so it was not okay. Well, but no, let, let, me, let me unpack it. There's nothing wrong with asking a foreign country to investigate past corruptive episodes of corruption. We do it all the time. doesn't get done uh, on the level of the president, but I can tell you, of course, in my legal career, including now I represent several people who cannot travel to the United States because they've been uh, investigated both here and in various foreign countries. And there's lively exchange between DOJ and the Between DOJ, which is, conducts criminal investigations that are predicated same with counterintelligence on, investigations. But, but right. look, well, David, uh, let, me, let, let me ask you this. Are you, David, are you aware of any examples of President Trump asking the president of Ukraine to conduct investigations that would not redound to President Trump's political benefit. Are there any examples of that? Uh, that actually, I appreciate the question because to me, that's a wrong question. Let me tell you why. As long as what the president is asking is within the four corners of his constitutional prerogatives, as long as what he's asking is whatever you think about its merits, its wisdom, but constitutionally speaking, it's within the four corners of his executive power. The fact that it may rebound to his political advantage is, I say, irrelevant. Repeat, utterly irrelevant. Okay? As a constitutional, As a constitutional matter. matter. And I'll tell you why. Because in a democracy, no politician in either Congress or the executive branch ever does anything that he or she does not believe reminds the political advantage. Let me give you a hypothetical. If there is a conversation between Trump and you know, Mr. Xi, the head Chinese guy, and Trump would just say, you know what, I really want a good deal on trade. It really would be really important to me because it would help me get elected. Would that be a wrong thing? No, if you no, were to no, tell no, Chairman on. Kim, David, no, but it's come the same. on, a, a tr good trade deal redounds to the benefit of the American public. As well um, as the a president's. A specific could. investigation into Joe Biden had only one real purpose on its face, which was to knock down a potential political rival say, of the president say, of the United say, States. He has no other purpose. Say you, but on the other hand, to extend the corruption in Ukraine is a real concern. Did he raise general questions about the multiple examples of corruption in Ukraine? There are lots of oligarchs in Ukraine who have been accused of let's corruption. Just, There's let, lots of Ukrainian public let, officials just say who have been sample. accused of Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, the, the, <laughs> of all the corrupt look, acts in Ukraine, look, this was hardly at the top of me, the U.S. Let, government's let, list let, of matters to be concerned and, and also about. Before, and also, before, and you wait, wait, answer, let, before you answer now, before you answer, just let me add yeah. one addendum to this, which is, it turns out he wasn't actually really asking for an investigation into Burisma and Biden or the server, the Ukrainian, the server, the DNC server that's that he believes ended up in Ukraine. He was asking for a public announcement of those investigations. Well, that's that's a factual leap. I understand that there was a suggestion that he was asking a symbolic announcement and not the real investigation. That was the testimony of Gordon Sondland. Yeah. But, I mean, the notion that Sondland really knew if we were in a court of law, real court of law, what it, when in president's mind is, is risable. But look, I think for purposes, we're in the middle of impeachment. This whole effort, discussion is about impeachment. I can tell you that virtually every foreign policy action by this president and the other president, whether it's JCPOA or Iranian nuclear deal, whether it's a nuclear denuclearization deal with North Korea, whether it's something involving China, they all rebound to the president's political advantage. The, the salient question is, and I can elaborate as to why it's a salient, let me say this. The framers were very suspicious about impeachment power. We debated it quite extensively. There's a possibility it would not be put in place at all. When they debated to whom to give it. Okay, the House came in as a reluctant last because they wanted to give it to the Supreme Court. They wanted to give it to state legislatures. They were not whooping for joy precisely because they understood about all the abuses of impeachment by the British Parliament. And one of the sort of issues of the day was the impeachment by the Parliament, utterly bogus one of a fellow by the name of Hastings, who was the Viceroy of India, very similar to Trump in many respects because he didn't do anything demonstrably criminal, but he was trying to take the power away from the East India Company and corruption in office, blah, blah, blah. 
they did it as a necessary evil. They rejected a broad formulation uh, of an impeachable offense, which was maladministration. Because, and I quote, this would effectively mean the service of a president, the pleasure of Congress. So high government misdemeanor has to have a definition, a context. It has to be a cabining principle. What I would say, it's interesting. Yesterday, several of, of my constitutional law colleagues were saying, I, I think the fellow from Stanford, that this is not impeachable, but nothing is impeachable. I say the reverse. If this is impeachable, everything is impeachable. Every action by the president that at least the president is blunt enough or, shall we say, transparent enough to articulate the way Trump did, be a result of impeachment. But is that really what matters? What if somebody does a wink and a nod and says, I think it's really in national security interest to investigate this as an, an example of a broader corruption in Ukraine, wink, wink. Would that be any different? There's nothing that the president can do under the legal architecture put forward by the House Democrats that is not an impeachable offense. And the question is, does the House want to do that? That is an abuse of power of most fundamental proportions. You know, I think your arguments would have a little more traction if you were willing to admit the obvious, which was that it was wrong for the president to make this request of the president of Ukraine. It was something that leapt out at everybody when they read the plain words of the transcript. I want you to do me a favor. And then he identifies Biden by name as should be the subject of the investigation. It's, it's Trump's... Uh, on, it, on its it, face, it's, it's wrong, it's correct? Trump, Will it, you agree? It's, it's correct. It was not wise. Okay, no, no, wrong, it, but wrong, wrong in what sense. Wrong, say the words wrong? Okay, fine. It was wrong. It was foolish. It was not wise. But it is a far... First of all, I am not at all convinced that if you take the linguistic, you know, ticks aside, that what he really was driving at is looking at the broader context. I know we've been called the discredited theory. He doesn't say anything no, no, no. other than he <laughs> wants 2016 election interference and his crazy no, no, wackadoodle reference theory. to a missing server. I, and, I, and, uh, and then he mentions the okay. Bidens. I understand. This is sort of like similar to his reference about McCain, like, like people get captured. Can we look, be, look, one of the things you do in law, you try to look be, what's behind it. Look, we know that Russia interfered. As to why they interfered is a different story. We're not going to debate now. Of course they interfered, but Russia was not the only country that interfered. There is some evidence, if you look at John Solomon reporting, but Ukraine interfered as well. What but, is wrong? But on nothing like the scandal of what the Russians no, no, did, which was cyber a attacks systematic by, intelligence operation on, to interfere. By their security my, services, their my, military am, intelligence no, agency, am, you know, stealing thousands of my, documents you know, and then using them familiar, for political effect. That's nothing my, like what uh, a few Ukrainian law, officials law said. My, I agree. Law is my second career. My first career was Soviet defense analysis. If you're familiar with my work, I'm not going to take a backseat to anybody. You might distaste for all things Soviet and Russian. But that's not the point. Was it illegitimate for the president to say to Ukraine, you were bad guys, you were corrupt guys? Why didn't you look into it? Did he choose the wisest words? Should he have done that on his own? No. But all of that has nothing to do. Remember I said, maladministration thrown out by the framers because that's not an impeachable offense. Because maladministration is in the eyes of a beholder. That makes president, instead of being a co-equal branch, a ward of Congress. That's what Madison and Mason and everybody else said. It has to be real. Okay, so let's not worry about the wisdom of his, of terminology. Okay. What do you mean it has to be real? Real in a sense, in my view, when the president uses his constitutional authority, he's not exceeding it, nor is he violating a statute, which is what Andrew Johnson was impeached in. Turns out statute was a constitutional was, right. officer. But, I mean... If a president is operating within his constitutional box, I would argue in the most aggressive view, that is mine, per se, it's not an impeachable offense. A less aggressive view is there has to be utterly compelling evidence of what Mike is trying to infer, but he really did it for this reason, not that reason. He didn't really care about exposing corruption. He really wanted a symbolic announcement of you know, investigation. There has to be clear and convincing evidence that that's the case. And there's absolutely no clear and convincing evidence. The only person who tried to talk about his motivations was Sondland. What happened with Bolton? 
what happened with Mulvaney. Well, you're making a compelling case for why they should be required to testify no, because they have the first-hand am, knowledge yes, of what was in the what, what making, the president's intent was with, with respect, in cutting off the military uh, aid. Uh, very, why do you think he cut off the military aid? Look, I would tell you what the Washington Post, New York Times is. No, I'm asking, but, why do you believe he cut off the military aid in, uh, well, uh, in I'll, July? I'll tell you what I believe to be the case. It has been described, and it's interesting because it doesn't fit this case. Well, he wanted to really go after Biden because he was worried about Biden. There have been multiple articles in newspapers, and nobody can accuse of being sympathetic to President Trump, who say he hated Ukraine from day one. As soon as he got into office, he had real issues with Ukraine because he believed they were once who interfered against him. Do you realize, by the way, if that's true, you cannot really ascribe what he's done with the aid to trying to block Biden. In fact, those articles, and I'm sure you've read them in the Post New York Times, asserted that his aides, including Bolton, took months to get him to do anything positive vis-a-vis Ukraine. So let's stipulate this one. Yeah, but he the didn't, he didn't, cut, off, bonnet about he didn't cut off aid to Ukraine in 2017. He didn't cut off aid to Ukraine in 2018. In 2019, after Biden announces for the presidency and is immediately touted as the front runner, then he cuts off the aid. The reason I'm smiling, Mike, is you're ascribing a tremendous messaging and policy formulation discipline to this administration, which I don't think anybody has accused of. Bottom line is, the president, rightly or wrongly, had real concerns about Ukraine, both because he believed, rightly or wrongly, rightly they interfered. or wrongly, but, but, that's but, kind of matters, doesn't no, no, no. it? If it was wrongly, then, then it's, it's an abuse of power. No, it's maladministration. It's not an abuse of power at all. If you wrongly believe He's using the powers of his office for the wrong reasons. That seems to me the definition of abuse of power. And Barack Obama, in my view, for very wrong reasons, done a deal, nuclear deal with Iran, propitiated Iran, gave him hundreds of millions of dollars so they can engage in terrorism and kill more Americans. I think it was... Yeah, but that was a, a clear that example. was a politically risky deal that was not going to help him get. I mean, he was already in the second term, but it was not going to help his give him political advantage. Something tells me that that's not how you saw it, rightly or wrongly. Bottom line is, let's get off the table the issue of political benefits. If what you are doing is per se legal because it is wise or not, using your core constitutional powers, it is not an impeachable offense. By the way. We have two co-equal branches, right? Congress, Article 1, President, Article 2. Congress has, members of Congress have an absolute immunity called speech and debate clause, right? For all uses of proper uses of their legislative powers. The reason people like Congressman William Jefferson Clinton got in trouble because remember the cold hard cash in the freezer. But whatever you say on the floor, whatever you do oversight-wise, whatever you do legislation-wise, you're 100% immune. The executive has in my opinion, even though it's not written quite this way. The very same prerogative. You cannot muck somebody up by virtue of his or her use of constitutional powers because you don't like it. If you don't agree with it, we don't have co-equal branches. And by the way, I'm sick and tired of hearing all this. Well, it's a family program, I suppose. I'm not going to use an F word. No, yes, you can. Okay, about all this fucking shit about King George. Because let me tell you something. The notion that the framers were primarily concerned about King George is historically redonkulous. If you look at the at the framers and the debates, they're primarily concerned about what? Legislative supremacy. They expected the Congress would be the most powerful branch. They wanted to limit it. So they would be very, very unhappy today watching Congress do what it's doing. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't concerned about overly powerful president. They were, but that was not their number one priority. Their number one priority is making sure that the president is not a word of Congress. What is being done today vulgarizes, trivializes impeachment because it's not high crime and misdemeanor. Hold a Council on Foreign Relations seminar about whether or not it was wise to uphold military. By the way, where is Colonel Windman complaining about the fact that Barack Obama's administration hasn't done shit for Ukraine? Am I missing something? Were you, were you a supporter of Bill Clinton's impe- impeachment? No, never did. And well, how come? Because, in my opinion, he did not commit a high crime and misdemeanor. He indeed perjured himself. But the underlying conduct was not? Not sufficiently grave. Now, by the way, let me be clear. <laughs> I hate this expression, actually. What he's done, which is committing perjury, is not 
an exercise of his constitutional powers. So committing perjury while in office, suborning a witness, offering somebody a bribe, is not in that sweet spot of his constitutional powers. So technically it was impeachment. Actually, isn't the word bribery in the Constitution as grounds for impeachment? Of course. So but it has said, to be bribery. Right. Well. And, and. That's we what's go back, alleged here, right? Well, not on the facts that we know. Uh, there is actually a, a, a piece by, I think, Senator Blumenthal yesterday in the Post. Right. And it's interesting. When I read it, I said to myself, I'll be a little snarking. The difference in his arguments and Schiff's arguments. Schiff's arguments are kind of vague and amorphous, are wrong, but it's not easy to see. He tried to drill it down in a more precise way, and it shows you how ridiculous they are. In order to, his basic argument is this, and he says it more or less this way. If what you're doing is legitimate in its own right, so you want to investigate corruption in Ukraine, or, by the way, let's ask yourself for a second. So let's say he was concerned about Biden. I don't know if it's true, but let's say he was. But he believes that Biden broke the law. United States government asked foreign governments to investigate every freaking day Americans who broke the law in foreign country. Is the fact that you're running, hold on, Mike, is the fact that you're running for president gives you some kind of temporal immunity? I mean, coming from people who don't think a sitting president has immunity. So what the law do you think uh, Biden violated or that what law do you think the president could have plausibly believed Biden violated? Well, I don't know about uh, vice president, former vice president Biden, but to the extent Burisma was a nest of corruption. If you have, I can tell you this much, that's one of the areas of law I practice in. If Burisma was a nest of dirty money, every penny that they paid to Hunter Biden is an act of money laundering. If you steal money and you pay me even for legitimate service, you engage in money laundering, I'm a recipient of your money laundering. Maybe I, yeah, but- I can be, quote, an innocent recipient and therefore I can get off. There's more than enough to just find investors. Okay. But you well, do know, I mean, it, you, you have to believe that he was fixated on Biden because Biden was his political rival, right? I mean, he did not ask, this is a, a you know, there, there are thousands of Americans who uh, do business in, in Ukraine who, who are therefore associated with, uh, like, likely are associated with corrupt me, businesses. I will fall back on the fact that I'm a lawyer. The impeachment process is a, politically infused, but it's a quasi-judicial process. We're not supposed to infer things. I cannot get back, uh, cannot get up in the court of law and say, this person is bad because of such and such. Let's infer things. I am not prepared to infer anything. He spoke in a way that probably was not wise. He probably should have been driven by him. But fundamentally, the essence of a request, which is look at the past corruption, is not wrong. Was there any Justice Department investigation in July of 2019 into Burisma, Joe Biden, or Hunter Biden? I have no idea, but there, I well, because there wasn't. But, Nobody has even suggested there was. But my, and if there was, an, if there was an adequately predicated investigation by the Justice Department, and the president is asking the Ukrainian president to to cooperate in that investigation, fine, then you've got a point. But there wasn't. He just, out of thin air, in fact, requested in fact, this investigation. In call, he invokes uh, Attorney General Barr's name, and then Barr says, he never talked to me about this. I don't know anything about this. Well, there is some, there is, look, again, we take people as we find them. This is Trump. Okay, <laughs> there is some missing linkages here. But look, I know, look I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be forthcoming, but please be forthcoming, foolish me. This is as a use of impeachment power, which is the most formidable authority Congress has, overriding the Democratic choice, destroying or incapacitating a coordinate branch, harming our foreign policy, tremendous harm, not to be invoked without enormous justification, never be completely partisan. This is the most partisan Pretextual, horrible impeachment. Okay, I, can you can you I come think, across look, and see something here? I think that is a, I do think that is a serious argument. I'm not sure that the facts in this case necessarily make it a valid argument, but in principle, that is a very serious argument. But the counter argument and what the other side says is there's another precedent that you would be setting 
if you did not pursue impeachment, that there would not be any accountability for the kind of conduct that the president has engaged in, except the election. And the argument is he's already solicited the help of a foreign government to intervene in uh, in this election. So how can we let him escape any accountability and just, you know, he may do the same thing going forward? As a conceptual matter, there are two bookends. One is what you're talking about, which is essentially reading the impeachment power out of a constitution. Bad. Other bookend, what I'm talking about, is trivializing it to the point whatever president does, if you have a political will and a desire to impeach him and the balance of power in the House of Representatives in your favor, you do that. Both are unacceptable. Now, to which bookend are we closer? Look, if this was real, have a serious investigation have definitive adjudication of whether or not Messrs. Bolton, Kupperman, and Mulvaney can be ordered to testify. Would you, would you argue they should be ordered to testify in this no. case? No. They should not. As, as a matter of constitutional... So you want... That, that's what you're asking for, a real investigation no. with testimony from Bolton and Mulvaney, no. but you don't believe they should no, be required I can, I can to testify. T- I, I, so therefore, how do you have a real investigation? I, no, no, I understand. No, no, it's fair. I, what I can tell you, what if it were up to me, what I would do is I would either litigate this to the point where the court rules consistent with, I mean, the the national security privilege is rooted in the 1807 decision by the Supreme Court. We're talking about more than a couple of hundred years. I would be happy with judicial determination that they don't have to testify, and then they can testify voluntarily. Okay, the problem with the Congress has done, and look, everybody's playing games here. Congress done it in a way that was certain to brook refusal. If Congress said in a letter, another thing I would do, I'm not the White House counsel, but Congress wrote a letter saying, we agree that immediate advisors to the president, particularly coupled with a national security privilege, cannot be persuaded to testify against their will. But we would really like to if they testify, please. If, if I would advise the president if I were White House counsel to honor that. Well, you, but, we should point out that you were in the White House counsel's office <laughs> under but, President George H.W. Bush, if I correct. recall correctly, and uh, who was uh, caught up in the Iran-Contra affair, as I recall Allegedly. It, well, he was certainly <laughs> yeah. uh, investigated yes. uh, was by investigated. the special counsel. Actually, as I recall in that— um, Things were worked out. Yes, and he testified, did he not? Uh, he said for an interview. Right. And as did the pres- as did his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, who also agreed to be questioned as part of the Iran-Contra Tower, investigation. Tower Commission was not right. congressional. Video this tapes. president has not agreed to be questioned at all. Let me say this. There is some truth to what you're saying, but don't laugh. Whether or not Trump has articulated this way, Tremendous matters are at stake in figuring out how the two coordinate branches interact with each other. Let's just say that I don't personally approve every tittle and jotto of a Cipollani letter to, con- uh, to Congress about why this is legitimate. I wouldn't have put it this way. I also utterly disapprove of how Congress styled its efforts. If there, there could have been opportunities to have an accommodation because it is one, for example, there was one testimony, despite the uh, so-called immediate advisor's privilege relative to the firing of U.S. attorneys. It was worked out in a collegial fashion. There's nothing wrong with two coordinate branches working things out in a collegial fashion. But you send snarky, nasty subpoenas, and then you get up and say immediately, but if you don't do it immediately, that's obstruction. I mean, if somebody came to you in a private context and, and, and demanded something of you that you know utterly to be wrong. Would you play ball? There's no effort to find accommodation here, unfortunately. Okay, David, so we're going to have to wrap this up, but let me ask this last question. I think we can all concede here that President Trump is going to be impeached. That seems likely by the House. More than likely. I so think it's pretty certain at this that point. That means there's going to be, a, there's going to be uh, some kind of a Senate trial. If you were advising Mitch McConnell, you... I don't think you've used the word sham, but you seem to believe that this has been an illegitimate process. Right. What would your advice be to McConnell about the kind of, because he's going to have a lot of power in terms of thank, how thank this you. Thank trial Thank you for asking. Everybody out. assumes, so do I, that President Trump would be acquitted, but it's not enough. I would like the Senate as a key portion of, of, of Congress to do things that would, in essence, betray what 
what the House has done is illegitimate. I would do it in two ways. As far as obstruction charges are concerned, I think so risable, they should be dismissed about trial. And there's precedent for that in Johnson impeachment because free charges out of, I mean, to spend a second, free charges out of 11, if I'm not mistaken, but came, articles came out of a house, were thrown out. You know what his charges were? That he delivered, con, he was contumacious towards the house. He said nasty things about the house. The Senate threw it out. So all well, Trump, Trump, drunk. Trump yeah. would, it's hard to imagine Trump have, being contumacious. We, we have quoted from that article <laughs> yeah. on multiple occasions right. in Skullduggery. Yeah. Right. Um, by the so, way, the president did say he and tweet he wants a trial right so trial on the merit issues which is what we spend most of our time talking about with serious discussion about why this is not a high crime and misdemeanor why when the president exercises constitutional authority absent a clear and convincing evidence that something else is in play it's not an obstruction i think it will be very curative and i don't necessarily know if i need to call in hunter biden or Joe Biden, but there are some witnesses that clearly can can you know can provide some light. So a serious trial. And by the way, for the record, despite the snarky conduct by uh, Chairman Schiff uh, relative to uh, uh, getting information about phone calls of, of his of his peer in the House, under that logic, Lindsey Graham can do the same vis-a-vis uh, vis-a-vis uh, Mr. Schiff to see how many times he's spoken to a whistleblower. My advice would be not to go down that path because two wrongs don't make it right. Well, we will see if they take your advice. And, um, we might uh, want David back on as a color commentator need, yes, during the trial. During the trial. Um, anyway, <laughs> Thank David, you, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Anytime. Thanks to Acting Solicitor General Neil Kachal and Washington Attorney David Rifkin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.